came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves. Radio waves. She sees radio waves. Radio waves. Astrophys brings the news. Arrays and dishes get different views. Are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. I'm Brendan O'Brien and today is Friday the 2nd of October. And you don't need reminding, it's 2020. Each month, we bring you two fabulous episodes. At the top of each month, we have an interview with a respected astronomer, astrophysicist, space scientist or particle physicist. Then, in the middle of the month, we bring you Dr. Ian Musgrave's Sky Guide for the next four weeks, where he previews celestial observations for naked eye observers, telescopers and astrophotographers. We also include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively, and isolate as much as possible as we work our way through this COVID-19 crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. So right now, we've got a fabulous interview for you. Enjoy. Hello, Adele. Hello, Brendan. Today, we're zooming down to Melbourne, Australia, to speak with almost doctor Adele Goodwin, a third and final year doctoral student who's a neutron star researcher based at Monash University, Thanks for speaking with us, Adele. No worries, Brendan, and thank you. I'm very excited to be on the show today. Thanks very much. Okay. So before we talk about your neutron star research, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Adele, and tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place? So I grew up in Melbourne, Australia, in the Dandenong Ranges. I have three sisters, so I grew up in a very busy household, and both of my parents are really big on science. So my mum is a maths teacher, and my dad is a computer software engineer. So I think my parents instilled in me and my sisters a love of science and figuring out the why of things from a very young age. My dad especially loves talking about physics and space and new physics discoveries, so much so that when I was very young, so when I was about five, I was actually terrified of black holes. Um, I rightly so thought they were the scariest things in the universe. But I think it definitely comes down to my parents and kind of the way I grew up, how I became interested in science and space. Fantastic. I think black holes are very scary things now still. So can you tell us a little about those school days and your early ambitions and did those ambitions change? Yes, so when I was five, I loved space and I wanted to be an astronaut. I remember in grade one, I did a project for this thing called the Science Talent Dirt 
and I did a project on the first monkey they sent to space. And I won a prize. I won a $20 check. <laughs> At that young age, I loved reading and learning and everything I could learn about space. And then as I grew up, I actually kind of wasn't as into space as I was when I was very young. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do for a long time. Um, I really enjoyed reading and literature and I took French classes. I really enjoyed languages. Um, but I also still enjoyed maths and physics and the science side of things. Unfortunately, by the time I got to VCE, my high school actually never encouraged me to do physics. I think our physics classes at my school were often very heavily male dominated. So we often had only one or two females in those classes. I never really even thought it was something I could do. So I ended up doing kind of biology and chemistry, English literature and French for my VCE subjects. And I thought that when I got to university, I would do a general art science degree yep. and figure out what I actually wanted to do later on. Yeah, so I think I definitely went through phases. I think for a while I wanted to be a lawyer. When I was a bit younger, I wanted to be a librarian because I love books so much. Um, so I, yeah, I wasn't actually really sure what I wanted to do. <laughs> so after that successful and diverse school career, you completed your Bachelor of Science Advanced degree at Monash, and along the way, you were awarded a heap of scholarships and studentships, and you were awarded first-class honours for your honours thesis, Thermonuclear X-ray Bursts from Accretion-Powered Millisecond Pulsars. But first, can you tell us a little about what drew you into astrophysics? Yeah, so actually one of the first times that I thought maybe I could do astrophysics was my high school chemistry teacher. And I was, I was quite good at chemistry, but I think he knew that it wasn't really my passion. And he actually suggested, because he was also a physics teacher, he suggested that I should pick up physics and get into astrophysics at university because I wasn't doing it in year 12. And once I got my ATAR score, so my VCE results, I made the last minute decision not to do an art science degree but to do an advanced science degree instead. And I had a look at all the electives that were available and I saw astronomy was a first year elective. So I picked that up and I soon remembered how much I loved learning about physics and space and the real nitty gritty of why things work the way they do. Um, obviously I did physics in first year uni as well. And I never looked back as I realized how much I loved learning about physics and doing research and discovering new things. So I ended up in my undergraduate degree doing a double major in physics and astrophysics. Um, in my third year, I did the first research project and I actually worked on thermonuclear x-ray vests. <laughs> yep. um, and I, I, I just, I, research is so very different to taking classes in undergrad. And I soon realized that uh, research was definitely something I was very passionate about. I really enjoyed. It never really felt like work because it was just so interesting to me. So I carried on and did honours in astrophysics and then um, ended up starting my PhD. Sensational. That's so cool. And right now you're in your final year of your PhD. And what's the timeline? I think it's getting close, I believe. Do you have to do a defence? And what's the process from this point onwards? Yes, actually imminently close this week. I am hoping to submit my thesis by the end of this week, if not next week. Yep. So I'm really at the very end of my PhD track at the moment. 
And we're actually quite lucky here in Australia. Our PhDs generally last about three and a half to four years, minimum three years. And there's no defence involved. So all that we have to do, when I say all, I mean it's three and a half to four years of work. <laughs> yep. um, but all that we have to do is submit the thesis itself and that gets sent out to two external examiners for assessment. And what I'm actually doing is called thesis by publication. So my thesis is a series of papers that I have published along the way during my PhD. And then I've just written an introduction and a conclusion that frame the papers. And that is, that's my thesis. Fantastic. We're going to refer our listeners to one of your papers a bit later. Now, your thesis research topic is on the nature of neutron stars in accreting systems. Can you give us a potted history and perhaps the life cycle of neutron stars? And what is accretion, please? Definitely. So I might be biased, but I think that neutron stars are the coolest objects in the universe. Now, in layman's terms, a neutron star is just a dead star. So by that, I mean when a star that is more massive than our sun, so maybe 10 times more massive than our sun, runs out of fuel to burn, so it spends all of its life undergoing nuclear fusion and burning all hydrogen and helium, etc. Um, and once it's run out of that fuel, it dies in a huge explosion, which is known as a supernova. And depending on how big the star was, at the end of that huge explosion, what's left over either be a neutron star or a black hole. So if it's about, maybe this is very approximate, if it's about 10 to 20 times more massive than our sun, you'll end up with a neutron star. If it's bigger than that, you can actually end up with a black hole. Yep. So neutron stars are extreme objects. They're about one and a half times the mass of our sun but they're only around the size of Melbourne. <laughs> yep. So to put that into perspective, if you were to cut both of your hands together here on Earth and go and grab some neutron star material, in your hands, you would be holding about 5 billion tonnes or the equivalent of five Mount Everest. Cool. So it's kind of mind-blowing just how dense and extreme these objects are. And these aren't even black holes yet. So these are actually... Black holes are even more extreme. We don't really know how dense a black hole is, but neutron stars are something that we can quantify and we can kind of try and understand. So neutron stars, they obviously operate at the extremes of physics and they're really interesting for our scientists to study, but there is a problem. Neutron stars are really hard to find and that's because they don't burn fuel and emit lots of light like a normal star, so like our sun does. So one of the only ways that we can actually see a neutron star is when one, it's in what's called an accreting system. So an accreting neutron star is a neutron star that is born in a binary system. So it's born together with another star and they orbit each other. And if the other star is a very low mass star, so it might be something like our sun, it will actually plot along not doing much while the neutron star evolves through its nuclear burning, goes through a huge explosion and becomes a neutron star. And then they're still in this binary orbit and they can actually, the orbit can contract over time. And once it gets close enough, material can be transferred from the normal star to the neutron star. Because the neutron star is very dense, it has a very strong gravitational field. So this, this gas can flow into a disk around the neutron star. And as it's flowing in through the neutron star's gravitational field, it will actually release gravitational potential energy in the form of light. And most of this light is actually emitted 
in the x-ray portion of the electromagnetic spectrum because it's very, very energetic. So this kind of emission from accretion is exactly what I'm searching for when I look for accreting neutron stars. And again, it's one of the only ways that we can actually see neutron stars because they're kind of very small objects, very dark objects, and space is really big. That is so cool. Now, I found a number of your first author papers. You referred to writing papers earlier. And I found some on the archive server and a few other places. And one published a few months ago in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society leapt out at me as being a classic example of the relationship between theoretical and observational research. And your paper was a Bayesian approach to matching thermonuclear X-ray burst observations with models. Can you give us um, the good word on what is Bayesian probability, please, and how do you test theoretical models against observations? Yes, so I am definitely not an expert in Bayesian statistics, but I can do my best to um, give a, a, a simple explanation for this. But first of all, I just want to say I, I love this paper um, because it was something I started working on very early in my research career, and it took me a long time to publish. So it's something I'm quite, quite proud of, I guess. We can develop all of these great and detailed models, but obviously we need to think about whether or not we've got the physics right. And we need to develop ways that we can test our models to see if they're actually predicting things that actually happen. So one of the ways that we can do this is we can compare our models to observations to make sure that what we're predicting from our models actually is what we observe. And this sounds like a very simple thing to do, right? It's an obvious step in understanding how models work. But you'd be surprised in astronomy, theorists tend to stay well away from observations and modelers um, and ob observers tend to stay within their field of observation. But this is something that I wanted to change with this paper, especially in the field of X-ray bursts. I should probably explain what an X-ray burst is. So a thermonuclear X-ray burst is actually a huge explosion that can occur on the surface of a neutron star when they accrete fuel. So what can happen is they're in these accreting systems. The fuel can build up on the surface of the neutron star and the neutron star has a very strong gravitational field. It's a very dense environment. So this fuel, which is usually hydrogen or helium because it depends what the companion star is, is made of, it builds up on the surface of the neutron star, condenses down, gets really hot um, and really dense, and it can actually ignite in an unstable explosion, which releases very, very large amounts of energy, and there's super bright flashes that last on the order of a minute, and we see them with our X-ray telescopes. So this is what I'm modelling <laughs> in this paper. But it can be quite difficult to, I guess, when you have a model and it has some kind of set of input parameters, it can be difficult to just randomly guess the input parameters that are going to match the observation because there's any number of combination of input parameters that could give you a single result. So we look to other methods to kind of develop ways that can kind of automate this for us. And so in this paper, I, I use Bayesian statistics. So Bayesian statistics is it's something that's thrown around a lot in astronomy nowadays. I'm definitely not going to pretend to be a Bayesian theory expert because there are people that spend their whole lives just studying Bayesian theory. Um, but in simple terms, in my understanding, 
Bayesian probability allows the probability of something to be estimated based on some prior knowledge or beliefs about the thing. So in the case of my research, I use Bayesian statistics to infer parameters of a neutron star system that we can't observe. So these parameters could include the neutron star mass and radius or the composition of the accreted fuel. And I have a model that takes in inputs and these inputs include the mass and radius and the fuel composition and some other things that I'm interested in. And then this model predicts things that we can observe, such as the energy of an X-ray burst or the amount of radiation or light emitted. Um, and so for specific systems, I have observations of these energies. And I also have prior beliefs about what might be reasonable ranges for the parameters I'm interested in. So for example, I know a neutron star can't physically be more massive than say about three solar masses because it just wouldn't be able to hold itself together. And it's probably not gonna be less massive than about 0.5 solar masses. So I can use this kind of logic for all of the parameters I'm interested in. And then combining all of this information, I use Bayesian statistics to try lots of different model input values and assess whether the output of the model for the specific set of input values it's tried matches the observations. And the model keeps doing this until it finds the best set of model inputs that match the observations. And yep. in this way, I can actually estimate an uncertainty on the parameters I'm interested in, so the input parameters, as well. So it's a super powerful method. So over time, your models get better and better. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it slowly kind of hones in on the, on the best result. And you can actually run these things for an infinite number of what's called steps. Um, but at some level, you, some time, it'll hopefully have honed in on the best solution. And then you can take that as, as your results. Fantastic. That's so cool. Okay. Now, your thesis has got that focus on accreting neutron stars. Can you tell us about the targets for your observations, the instruments that you use to gather your data and how you analyse that data? Yes, so most of the light emitted by accreting neutron star systems is super energetic and falls into the X-ray portion of the electromagnetic spectrum. Now, unfortunately, X-rays don't pass through the Earth's atmosphere which is actually quite good for most of us because we don't want to be constantly bombarded with high energy <laughs> radiation. <laughs> but for people like me, if you want to study x-rays, it's actually quite annoying because to observe x-rays, we have to send telescopes into space on satellites. Otherwise, we just wouldn't see them. So most of the telescopes that I use are actually x-ray satellite telescopes. Some of the ones that I have used include NISAS, stands for the Neutron Star Interior Composition Explorer. It's quite a new telescope. It was launched maybe two, two years ago. And it actually sits on the International Space Station, which is pretty cool. But it's also a little bit annoying because sometimes if we really want to observe something, we're actually not allowed to observe while the astronauts are doing spacewalks. Yep. <laughs> so sometimes we have like blackout periods because there's astronauts in space, <laughs> yep. which is a bit annoying. But anyway... <laughs> And then there's a bunch of other X-ray satellite telescopes, including Swift, Integral, XMM-Newton, and a few more. I also have access to some large sets of archival data. So there was this really revolutionary X-ray telescope called the Rossi X-ray Timing Explorer, and it was sent into space in 1995. 
and it actually it operated for 16 years and I think it really revolutionized x-ray astronomy because some of the best observations we have are still from the RXT. So yeah, I actually, I have a huge archival database from the RXT that I also have access to. So I don't always get new observations, but I, I can access lots of different kinds of observations. Of course, um, when I get the x-ray data, it doesn't look all nice and fancy like an optical image would. Um, <laughs> and we do have to process it before we can do science with it. But most of the data processing is done with very well-established software pipeline. And by the time I really get to work with the data, it looks pretty nice. Cool. Now, given that you're so far into your research and you've written up, well, probably 99% of it, can you tell us some of your results and what you've discovered there? Um, look, I understand some of your conclusions may be embargoed pending publication. That's the way it appears to work with some journals. So if that's the case, we can happily move on. But do you want to talk about some of your discoveries with this particular research? Yeah, so I think I've done a lot of research projects since starting my PhD, so I'm not going to talk about all of my results. But really recently, um, I had some a scientific result that we published, um, and it actually got a little bit of media attention. So there were some news articles going around about it. So I think I'll talk about that because I think it's a really cool result. So in essence, in this, in this research, I was able to coordinate observations with more than five telescopes, including telescopes in space and some on the ground around the world. Um, and we were able to watch the beginnings of an outburst in an accreting neutron star system. Yep. So this might not sound super exciting, but I'll explain to you why it is. <laughs> so some accreting neutron star systems do not always accrete. And this means that they spend long periods in what we call quiescence. And this means that they are very quiet. They don't emit much light at all. They're pretty much dark, like completely dark. We don't really see them. And then suddenly they can go into what's called outburst. And this is when the accretion switches on and material starts piling directly onto the surface of the neutron star. And when they go into outbursts, they become very bright across the electromagnetic spectrum, but mainly in x-rays because it's very kind of energetic emission. Yep. And this actually, this, this switching on process can be really hard to catch with a telescope. A, because there are not many accreting neutron star systems, and B, because they can spend years in this quiet state before suddenly switching on very fast. So we actually do not have very many observations at all of this kind of switching on process when they come into outbursts, because usually they're not, they're not, it's not known that they are in outbursts until they are bright enough to be seen with an all-sky monitor, and all-sky monitors are not super sensitive. But we changed this. So there was this one system, that it goes off really regularly. Um, so it goes off about every four years or so, getting a little bit longer between each outburst, but we can kind of predict when it's going to go off. And we knew it was due to go into outburst midway through last year. And it got to about halfway through last year. We thought it would have gone off by then and it hadn't gone off yet. So we actually applied for monitoring time with the Swift X-ray telescope, which is in space. And then we got a team of optical astronomers here on Earth <laughs> yeah. um, to monitor the system as well. And we actually got really lucky because we were only approved one month of monitoring time with the X-ray telescope. And two weeks into that month, the system went into outburst. So we, we got this really nice data set of the lead up and onset of the kind of the, the switching on of this system. 
And because we were looking in multiple wavelengths, so we had the optical, we had the X-ray, and SWIFT is actually a telescope that has multiple instruments on it. So it actually has a UV telescope as well as an X-ray telescope. So we had all of these wavelengths covered, and we were able to examine what was happening at different energies, because that, that's what the different wavelengths mean. It means different energy of light. And we were able to test some of the theoretical models of the accretion disk and the accretion flow, and we were able to determine the, the temperature of the accretion disk at the time of the outburst. So this is a really cool result. It's actually the first time that anyone has been able to watch this switching on in such detail for an accreting neutron star system. That's awesome. Fantastic. It must have been so exciting for you all. Now, looking at your output and all of those papers that have contributed to your PhD, so that that's only a fraction of the work you're doing. You've got multiple projects happening, like the one you've just described, and you're collaborating with some fantastic researchers and projects. Can you tell us about some of the other work that you're doing and the people that you're working with? Yeah, so I am very lucky that I get to work with some brilliant people from all over the world. Some of the countries include Canada, the Netherlands, Dubai, America, South Africa, and a bunch more. Last year, around this time of year, I went on a world tour and I actually flew a lap of the world and visited a bunch of different collaborators in different places. Um, but obviously, I wouldn't be doing that right now because of COVID. But at the moment, I'm collaborating with some researchers from the Netherlands, and we are working on modelling thermonuclear X-ray bursts. So these are, again, these huge explosions that can occur on a neutron star surface when the accreted material builds up and ignites unstably. And these are actually really interesting events to study because they're very extreme, they're very energetic, and a lot of nuclear reactions occur in these explosions that we, we can't replicate on Earth because they are just too energetic, too extreme, they're very difficult to replicate on Earth. Um, so if we can observe them in space, we can actually learn about, a lot about the nuclear physics that's going on. So in this, this project with his collaborators in the Netherlands, we're working on looking at the structure of the accretion flow onto the surface of the neutron star and how asymmetries in the temperature on the surface of the neutron star, which could be caused by how the accretion flow hits the neutron star, so maybe where it hits first and if there's like a hotter area or something like that. So this is actually a project I started when I was visiting the Netherlands this time last year and we finally got it to the point right now where we're probably about to submit the paper so it's pretty exciting. Cool looks like your timing was uh, very well timed. Now back to those neutron stars for a minute are you following the gravitational wave research involving neutron stars it seems to be another very exciting field. Yes definitely I think gravitational wave research is one of the most exciting fields in astrophysics at the moment. I do not work closely in gravitational wave research, but it's definitely something that is very close to my field. In fact, in some of my models, I have to account for gravitational wave emission by neutron stars in binary systems. Unfortunately, the kind of binary systems I look at, the gravitational waves are just way too small to be detected by the gravitational wave detectors. But I think there are some really interesting results coming out of the gravitational wave detection so far including when they observed a binary neutron star merger. So that's two neutron stars at a binary system colliding, as well as the most recent discovery of a huge black hole, which was bigger than, um, so it's, it, it, the black hole is so big that it, it falls into what's called the mass gap, 
Um, and that just means that it is so big that it can't be formed from a single star collapsing or in a supernova explosion. Um, it has to be formed by consecutive mergers of black holes to get to something that big. So it's super exciting result. Um, it's definitely a field to watch out for. <laughs> Thanks, Adele. What's not to love about those big numbers? Now, something that's front and centre on everyone's lives at the moment, can you tell us how COVID-19 is impacting on your research for you and your colleagues? Yeah, so I think this is really important to talk about. I think especially in Melbourne at the moment, we've had very, very strict lockdowns. So in the past two months, I pretty much have only left my house maybe once a week. <laughs> and that is just to go to the supermarket that's within five kilometres of my house. Um, I haven't been able to see any of my family or friends. So it can be quite taxing on your mental health. For me, I'm super fortunate that I can work from home. So I have a really big house. I have a proper workspace set up. And all of my work can be done on my computer. I don't have to go to a lab or anything like that or to a telescope on site because all my telescopes are in space. <laughs> but that being said, I am definitely a lot less productive in lockdown um, and just from working from home than I am usually. And it can be quite challenging because I feel like I'm falling behind and I'm not doing as well as I should. Or I'm not being as productive as I should. And I know I have some close colleagues who are in exactly the same situation and we're all struggling for like various different reasons. Um, and yeah, I think there are some other fields where they're probably affected even more because they, they physically can't do their research because they can't be in the lab right now. So yeah, I think it's definitely impacting us all in different ways. So I think it's important to remember that we've just got to do the best we can. Doing a PhD is already really taxing on your mental health. It's super stressful. It's a lot of work. And then doing a PhD in a pandemic is even harder. So the most important thing is just to look after yourself before even thinking about work. So that's kind of the mental approach I've had um, to this. But that being said, I do have to submit my PhD before my new job starts. <laughs> so yeah, I think, yeah, everyone is affected differently and we all just have to do the best we can at the moment. <laughs> I'd like to thank you and your Melbourne colleagues for the work that you've done by staying home and protecting the rest of the community by not letting the virus spread it's been great to watch Victoria's numbers go from 700 a day a little over two months ago, and today's numbers were just five. Sadly, there were some deaths that accompanied that, but it means that the sacrifices and the hard work that everyone in Melbourne's doing is paying some amazing dividends. So thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, I think... We're all really kind of approaching it with this kind of teamwork attitude of we're all in it together. I guess right now, the longer we spend in lockdown right, lockdown right now, the sooner that we can actually get to see our family, friends and return to a normal life. So we're getting there. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thanks from regional Victoria because we've reaped the benefit <laughs> of your hard work. Now, the microphone is all yours and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the equity and diversity challenges that we face in science communities or outreach or science denialism or science career paths or your own passion for research or our quest for new knowledge. The microphone's all yours. Thank you. So I think for me, one that is 
quite close to, to me because it's affected me a lot during my career is facing sexism in the physics world. So I was never encouraged to do physics at my high school. My VCA math teacher told me I wouldn't do math at university, even though I was top of his class. Yeah. <laughs> he was a very kind of old traditional man. And often when I got to undergrad, I would sit in classes of 100 plus students and there'd be less than 10 girls. Alienating and it can be really daunting. And it can also be really difficult because these physics classes, when I first got to undergrad, it was like more than 118 year old boys in a room, um, not many girls, and they kind of get this physics bro attitude, I guess. And it just makes it very difficult to kind of feel welcomed and feel like you belong there. And one of the, the major issues I think that I've identified is that often, especially in physics, I don't know if it's in other fields as well, but especially in physics, it's like there's this whole kind of ego thing about it. And a lot of kind of younger students like to boast about their knowledge and pretend that they know everything and talk about really complex phenomena in a really in a way that makes them sound super smart um, and I found that this can actually be really alienating and it can create a lot of insecurity in some people and I think this is the same for girls and boys and it wasn't until I got to postgrad that I actually realized that a lot of the people who I thought were really smart in undergrad who knew how to make themselves sound really smart and talk about really complex things they actually knew just as much as me <laughs> yep. um, and it turns out that yeah I actually I did belong there I was good at physics and just because I didn't might not have understood what kind of crazy words they were using to explain this one thing didn't mean that I I didn't belong there um, and I think yeah this kind of rather than kind of rather than accepting and acknowledging that we don't know everything and that we don't know something some people really like to talk themselves up and that especially can be really alienating for people who already feel like they don't belong and it can just make it feel like that you you don't know nearly as much as anyone else in the room um, when in fact you do and you do definitely belong there fantastic um we've still got a long way to go but it's great that there's people like you that will be inspiring the next generation of young research so is there anything else we should watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on? That's a good question. I think right now I'm actually super excited about learning more about Indigenous astronomy. So there's some really cool people that have been researching Indigenous astronomy and talking about it. So maybe the likes of Crystal DiNapoli and Kirsten Banks. Yep. And I think it's absolutely fascinating how Indigenous Australians were learning about and using the skies like 40,000 years ago or more. Um, and I think there is a lot that we can learn from their scientific methods and how they use the skies and saw the skies all of those years ago. Fantastic. I have interviewed Crystal, Kirsten and Carly, and they're just wonderful people as well as being great Indigenous astronomers. So that's um, good to hear that from you too, Adele. So let's sign off. Thank you very much now, almost Dr. Adele Goodwin. On behalf of our listeners, it's been really fabulous speaking with you and I'm going to be listening to this over and over again. Thank you especially for your time in your busy schedule. A very exciting time for you and we'll encourage all listeners to check out one of your recent papers on the archive servers and 
published in the Astrophysical Journal Letters. If you can't access Adele's Bayesian paper at monthly notices, you can get the PDF freely from the archive server itself. If you go to tinyearl.com forward slash Adele Goodwin, that's all lowercase, and make sure you follow Adele. She's at, at astro underscore Dell on Twitter. She does great posts. And finally, congratulations, Adele, and good luck, especially for your thesis submission. And we're going to have great fun following your career. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brendan. It was a pleasure to speak to you today. Bye now. See ya. And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored, and we're very happy to recommend that you can always get the latest and best space news from Rami Mandal at spaceaustralia.com. And another great Astro podcast is The Scientists with Kirsten Banks and Dr. Ankel Lopez Sanchez. And for observers and astrophotographers, always check out Dr. Ian Musgrave's Astro Blogger website. Till then, isolate, take care, look after yourself and your loved ones. And please, do wear a mask when you can't socially distance yourself. Radio Wave!